Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 3 today. We're taking a break from the book of Philippians. Uh, today we're celebrating Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, which typically occurs on the third Sunday in January. This year churches are celebrating it today or next week because next week is the 22nd, uh, which is the day that in 1973 the Supreme Court handed down its decision regarding Roe versus Wade and uh, gave the rights to every state to let them know that they had the duty to offer abortion to every woman up to the moment of the birth of the child. So we're celebrating it this week. Some will be doing it next week. It's a heavy topic. No doubt uh, many of you uh, know someone who have been affected by this, or maybe you have yourself seen it personally in your life and experienced it. Where do we go uh, as we think about such a heavy topic? The only place that we can go as the people of God is to God's word. And that's where we will get the perspective that we need. And that's where we will find our hope. And that's really what I hope that we all leave with today. I hope we all leave with a sense of hope, that there is hope. So here's our big idea for today. It's that God's word provides the only hope for hurting, hopeless, and half-hearted People. It's only God's word. If you're here today and you've personally been affected by abortion, maybe you had one, maybe your girlfriend or wife had one, someone that you know, my hope today is that you move from a place of condemnation to a place of peace, that you move from a place of despairing to a place of hope. And if you're here today and you're just flat out passive about abortion and you don't ever think of it, my hope is that you move from a place of passivity to a place of of passion in your heart of defending the rights of the unborn. So let's go to God's word. Let's dig into this hope-filled word so that we can all leave here today changed as a result of his word. Look in 2 Kings chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3, hear the words of the hope-giving God. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, He did not depart from it. So the time here in the setting is about 850 BC. Uh, Jehoshaphat is in his 18th year as king of uh, Judah. Ahab, the king of Israel, has just died. His son Jehoram has taken his place. Remember, at one time there was one kingdom of Israel, and at 922 BC, after the the death of King Solomon, the nation split into Israel and Judah. So here we have both kings represented here, uh, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and Jehoram, king of Israel, who was just taken over from his father, King Ahab. The author of 2 Kings right now is focusing on the reign of Jehoram. And he tells us in verse 1 that Jehoram's reign only lasted for 12 years. But notice what he tells us about Jehoram right off the bat. It says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. The author of the book of First and Second Kings here gets, gets right to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter here is that Jehoram was half-hearted. The author doesn't focus on Jehoram's building projects. He doesn't talk about the toll roads that he put in place. He doesn't talk about the uh, cameras that he put in at the intersections. He doesn't give us any of those details. He goes right for the heart, and he tells us that Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we may be tempted to give Jehoram some slack here. It It does say that he put away Baal, the image that his father had used, the, the, the Baal, the, the Canaanite god that the Canaanites worshipped. The author tells us, Jehoram put that thing away. He got rid of it. We might be tempted to say, well, give him a cookie. I mean, at least he put Baal away. But the author of Second Kings knows that it's not so commendable for Jehoram to do that because he still clung to the sins of King Jeroboam. The author isn't interested here in telling us how bad Jehoram could or couldn't be. The author isn't interested in cutting Jehoram some slack here. The Hebrew says he turned away from the pillar of Baal, but he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam were the two golden calves that he put in place in the cities of Dan and Bethel. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. So Jehoram has turned away from worshiping Baal but he's sticking with the the sins of Jeroboam. He's still worshiping the golden calves that are in Dan and Bethel. In fact, the Hebrew here says that he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. This is that that Hebrew word in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and do what? Cling to his wife. Jehoram is clinging to these two golden calves that they're worshiping in Dan and Bethel. See, it didn't matter what Jehoram did politically. All that mattered was who and how he worshiped. And he was an Israelite who was supposed to be worshiping Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, demands total submission. He wants all of our hearts. See, the lesson here is that we may give up some heinous sin and cling on to some lesser sin, but that doesn't satisfy the God of the Bible. He wants all of your heart. He doesn't give you a cookie because you're 95% committed to him. He wants it all. He wants first and second commandment kind of people. He wants all of you. And he wants all of me. Look at verses 3 through 8. King Jehoram's story continues. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. He went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. See, Misha was king of Moab. It was west of Judah, south of Israel. And he owed Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when King Ahab died and Jehoram took over, Misha took the first two letters of his name literally. 
This is me. He says, it's all about me, and you're not getting the, the lambs and the rams. I promised it to your father. He's dead. You're not getting it. So what does any good king do when someone stiffs him like that? You call for backup help, and you go to war, which is what he did. So he emails Jehoshaphat, hey, here's the deal. He owes me all this stuff. He's not paying up. Will you go to battle with me? And Jehoshaphat says in verse 7, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, which is Hebrew for, I've got your back, bro. We're going into battle. I've got your back. Let's go. Which way are we going to go? And he says, we've got to swing by Edom first. Why is Jehoram going to swing by Edom? Because he's going to pick up the king of Edom and say, the three of us, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and the king of Edom, we're going to battle against Misha because he owes me money. Now look at verses 9 through 11. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous route, march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. And then the king of Israel, Jehoram, said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? So the three armies march around for seven days. Everyone gets thirsty. The animals and the soldiers, everyone's thirsty. And then Jehoram starts to freak out. They're out of water. Oh, the Lord has brought the three of us here to hand us over to Moab. And Jehoshaphat, the godly king, says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of to help us out here? Now, why did Jehoshaphat want a prophet? Because a prophet represented the word of God. The prophet was the one who spoke God's word to God's people. Jehoshaphat knew in this predicament what we need is God's word. Let's find a prophet and let's get a word from the Lord. That was their only hope. They were in a hopeless situation. There's no 7-Elevens around. There's no big gulps available. There's no bottled water. They are thirsty and there's no... Target or Walmart, there's no place to get water. They are in a hopeless situation. And where do they turn? They turn to God's word. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to Jehoram, king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But Jehoram, the king of Israel, said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. So Jehoshaphat asks, is there not a prophet around here somewhere? And someone says, I think... Elisha's down at a Starbucks right down here. So they go down to him. They visit him there. 
And notice what Elisha says when he sees Jehoram. He says, why do you seek me now? Go to the prophets of your mother and father. Go to those golden calves that you worship and seek them. Why are you seeking me out? I'm a prophet of Yahweh and you're half-hearted. Why are you coming after me? And then he says, were it not for the fact that I highly respect Jehoshaphat because he's a godly king, he says, I wouldn't even look at you. But Jehoram says, oh, the Lord has brought us out here to hand the three kings over to Moab. Where? He's crying out. And yet Elisha says, you know what? I respect Jehoshaphat enough to help you. So Elisha says, bring me a musician. The musician starts playing the guitar or something. And then the hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha and he speaks God's word. And he says, the dry stream bed is going to be full, filled full of water. It's not going to happen by a rainstorm, but the Lord's going to do it. And you're going to get water and your animals are going to get water. Oh, and by the way, this is a very light thing for the Lord to do. He can just make the water appear. He says, and then he's going to hand the Moabites over into your hands and you'll attack every fortified city. You'll destroy all their fruit trees. You'll dam up all their water sources and you'll trash all of their gardens. And then you fast forward to the next day. And what does the wilderness of Edom Gazette have on the front page of its newspaper? Freak flash flood, floods in Edom. It's like it happened. Behold, the Hebrew writer is saying, it's that word of, look, you can see it. He wants you to enter into the story. Look and see, here comes the water. And so the water came. The Lord provided the water. And how did it come? It came through the word of Elisha, the prophet. It was Yahweh's word. You see, God's word provides the only hope for hurting hopeless and half-hearted people. Now, the story continues. And by the way, we're going somewhere with this. Stay with me. Verse 21. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. And they stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So word spread throughout Moab that this three-nation army was coming against Moab. And so Moab, get, all the men get, get ready for battle. They've got their, uh, their swords and their shields ready. And as the sun comes up, they look down and it looks like blood. And they think, well, they've all killed themselves. They couldn't get along. They killed themselves. Let's go get the spoils of war. So they take off. You've got to picture them running in thinking, great, we're going to find all these great things. And they show up, and then Israel just pops up and starts chasing these Moabites back to their cities and destroying them. And the text tells us that they did overtake the cities. They started destroying all their, their trees, uh, their gardens. They started damming up all the rivers. Things weren't looking good for Misha and Moab now. And then Misha tries one last-ditch effort. Look at verse 30, 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So when Misha is in the city, trapped, he's surrounded, he's thinking, let's get 700 of you men and let's just charge and let's, let's make a bolt. Maybe we can pull a William the Refrigerator Perry move. Do you, you remember him, football fans? Maybe let's put it this way for contemporary people. 
who aren't as old as I am. He tries to pull a Tim Tebow here. He tries to run through and get somewhere, but he can't. They can't break through. So he retreats back into the city. Now you may be wondering, I thought this was Sanctity of Life Sunday. I thought you were going to be talking about abortion. It is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I am going to be speaking with you about abortion. But we needed the background of of these 26 verses to, to prepare us for what happens in verse 27. We needed to see some hopeless half-hearted people who are hurting, and that's what Jehoram and Israel represent so far. And we needed to see that they needed God's word because God's word provides the only hope for hurting, hopeless, and half-hearted people. But now, look at verse 27 with the background of verse 26 because this is one unit in the story here. Look at verse 27. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So when Misha's move of breaking through the army and escaping the city didn't work, what does he do? He grabs his oldest boy and sacrifices him right there on the city wall. Why? Why did this bring the relief that Moab or Misha was looking for? Why was this a good option? Why did Misha take his oldest son and slaughter him on top of the wall. It was because Misha was from Moab. And the Moabites worshipped uh, the ancient Near Eastern god, Chemosh. And the way that you worshipped Chemosh was you offered human sacrifices. You offered your children as, a, as an act of worship to Chemosh. And this is what he does. He offers his son as an act of worship to his god. And then the text says that great wrath came against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. All right, so what's happening here? How does Misha sacrificing his child to his god, Chemosh, cause great wrath to come against Israel? What's going on here? There's four ways to interpret this verse. Option number one would interpret that great wrath is coming from, from Yahweh, the Lord. The phrase great wrath it is used in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it speaks of the Lord. Yahweh, the sovereign Lord's great wrath. But it doesn't make sense here that God's great wrath would come against his people when he's already come to them and in the kindness and goodness of who he is to give them his word. So I don't think it's Yahweh's great wrath coming against his people that make them leave the battle. Option two says that it's Chemosh's wrath, the God Chemosh, who really doesn't exist, even though we would say that there's demonic activity behind the worship of Chemosh. Chemosh really doesn't exist. He's not real. There's demonic activity at play here, but I don't think Chemosh's wrath is coming against Israel and making them leave. Option three says it's the Moabites' great wrath. They got it very angry and then attacked Israel. But they're trapped inside the city. And they wouldn't get mad at Misha for doing this because they would have just said, oh, he's worshiping Chemosh. It was a great act of worship there. So they wouldn't get mad at them. So option number four, I think, is the best option. I believe that the great wrath here is describing what happened to Israel. The Hebrew preposition here, all, can mean against or upon, depending on the context. So I think the great wrath did not come against Israel. Great wrath came upon them. They were overwhelmed. There was this moral outrage that consumed Israel. 
when Israel saw what Misha did to his innocent son and slaughtered him on the city wall, I think that great wrath came upon them. They were indignant. They were horrified at Misha's sacrifice of his firstborn son. They were so overwhelmed with the horror of what happened that they just quit the war. They stopped. They blew the trumpet. They called back the troops and said, that's it, the war is over, and they headed back home. Remember what they were fighting for? 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. It was a lot of money, but they were so repulsed by this sacrifice of Misha that they said, you owe us 100,000 rams and you owe us 100,000 rams, but we are willing to forego that because we value life. They walked away because innocent life was being shed. Misha took the innocent life of his son. Yes, his son was a, a guilty sinner born into this world, affected by Genesis 3 like all of us. But I think Israel responded because here this innocent child was being sacrificed. The principle of verse 27 is that life matters. Innocent life matters. The Israelites stood up for life. The great wrath that they felt in their emotions led them to action. And it's how we should respond to abortion. We should be moved in emotion. And that emotion should lead us to action. There should be a moral outrage that we experience and that should lead us into action. Some of us have both. Some of us think abortion is horrendous and that emotion stirs us up and fuels us into action. And some of us just have that emotion but we do nothing about it and some of us have none of it. But remember who Israel was in this chapter, hopeless, hurting, half-hearted, just like us. The beginning of the chapter, we have this outrageous debt owed by Misha, and it ended with this overwhelming debt caused by Misha. You've got two bookends. You've got debt, and you've got death, and what's in the middle? We have God's word giving hope to his people. God's word provides the only hope for hurting, hopeless, and half-hearted people. It was God's word which gave hope to Jehoram to go into battle. And God's word, I believe, which caused Jehoram to blow the trumpet trumpet and pull back his troops. And I think Jehoshaphat would have been there with him. I think it was God's word. Why do I say that? Because in Deuteronomy 17, it says, Whenever a king was to take over the land, they were to personally write out all of the Old Testament law, handwrite their own copy, read it, and keep it with themselves. So I'm making the assumption that Jehoram and Jehoshaphat know God's word and when they see innocent life being taken, they respond. They knew Exodus 23, which says, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. They knew Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. And I believe that when they saw Misha slaughter his boy, they were moved with emotion and then moved to action and One of these kings, Jehoram, was a half-hearted king who was moved in his emotions and then moved to action. And Jehoshaphat was a godly king who certainly was moved in his emotion and action. And the same should be true for us when we think about the slaughter of innocent babies through abortion. We should be moved with emotion and then moved to action. Since 1973, over 50 million babies have been aborted in the United States alone. 
Unfortunately, for most of us, we don't think about abortion, but every four years when there's a presidential campaign. But we, the church, should be the people who are so moved in our emotions over the slaughter of innocent, unborn babies that we should be led to action to do something about it, to care and protect the unborn. The church should be leading the charge. Remember, Jehoram was a half-hearted king. And I think he's a model for us here as we look at his life and see him half-hearted. But life mattered and he knew that and he responded to that. So let me give you some practical application here. And then we'll end with a a God-centered plea to do our part as a church and as individuals to see abortion come to an end. And for some of you just saying, come to an end, that'll never happen. It can happen. I think we've just bought into the lie that it's always going to be there. It can come to an end if we respond in our emotions and then we respond in our actions. So a couple of just practical applications here. Number one, you don't have to do it all, but just do something. Just do something. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to be at everything, be involved in everything, but just do something. Come tonight at 6 o'clock and hear from Karen Bull and others as they talk about the work that they're doing at CareNet. Find out how you can serve the unborn here in Santa Maria. Sign petitions and write letters. You can do that. You can write letters to politicians. A great resource is Americans United for Life. You can get email updates for them. Actually, the president of uh, Americans United for Life, Dr. Charmaine Yost, came on 25 minutes ago on Fox News doing a debate. So she's maybe debating right now. I was praying for her as we were worshiping at 9.30. Get involved with Americans United for Life, AUL.org. They got lots of information about abortion and laws specifically related to each state. They sign up. They send out emails saying, sign this petition, send it off. You can get involved that way. You can march and protest civilly. You can get on Facebook and like Central Coast Right to Life or CareNet Santa Maria and stay informed. You can take the baby bottles out here and fill them up with change and do our part. You can read and stay informed on the web, abort73.com. There's lots of websites out there. Here's the, here's the good thing about this is that, and I think we're getting some traction and seeing some progress. They're saying that, that CareNet and like pregnancy resource centers are on the rise and they're, they're just popping up everywhere, all over the place. In the last 10 years, you're finding them all over the place. There's some, there's some progress that is happening here. You could take in and help a pregnant girl. You could adopt or foster children. You could, you could have babies. It's very personal to me right now because we're days away from our fifth child and my brother, who can't have children, is in the process of adopting and their baby was born yesterday and they have the baby and they're waiting five days to sign papers to make it legal. It's very personal to me because our family is going through this. We've got two new babies entering in our family so you can have babies and do your part. Just do something. You don't have to do it all. Just find one thing to do and say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to contribute. 
Just one thing. If everybody did one thing, the problem is that so many of us are just so passive about it and we don't think about it. And it's not on the forefront of our thinking. And now God's word has come to us to challenge us that if we are half-hearted and passive about abortion, then God, in the goodness of who he is, has revealed to us in his word that we can respond in emotion and action and do our part to protect the unborn. You don't have to do everything, but just do something. Second, show mercy and offer hope to those affected by abortion. Comfort and minister the hope of Jesus to those who have experienced abortion. Notice in verse 27, it just says that Israel packed it up and left. They're not harassing Misha. They're not giving him a hard time. It just says they saw it and they responded and left. Remind those who have been affected by abortion of the promises in God's word about his wonderful forgiveness and the transforming power of the gospel. Genesis 50 speaks to this. Remember when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? That was a sanctity of life issue. They were selling their brother into slavery, to the mistreatment of another human being. That's a sanctity of life issue. How did Joseph respond all those years later in Genesis 50, 20? You meant it against me for evil, but God meant it for good. There's hope when it comes to sanctity of life issues. Slavery and abortion, and racism, and the selling of women on the sex market. There's hope here that God can turn it around for good, even though people mean it for evil. And if you've been affected by abortion, let me tell you today, if you're a Christian, God doesn't see you as a Christian who's had an abortion or been involved with someone who did. He sees you as a Christian covered by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's hope. That's gospel hope. That is not your identity. If you've experienced that, that is not your identity. You are a child of God in Christ, in union with Christ, covered and imputed with his righteousness. Thank God that all of the sin that we do in our life does not give us our identity. Amen? There's hope in the gospel. So as you meet people, you remind them of the hope that they have in the gospel that as far as the east is from the west, our sins are removed from us, washed pure and white like snow. Third thing you can do is pray. We often forget just how powerful prayer is. We believe and we affirm the sovereignty of God, but what might God do if his people begin praying, seriously praying that abortion would end? He might answer our prayers. The only hope any of us have who've been affected by abortion or know people that have is found in God's word. It's the only hope that we have. If you're half-hearted about it and passive, the only hope you have of changing is that God would arrest your attention through his word. And the only hope for those who are hurting is found in God's word. There's hope. There's gospel hope today. I'll close with a word from one of my heroes, John Piper, who has championed the fight to end abortion. He says this, Brothers, 
may we not dare to believe that by the grace of God and the perseverance of his people in prayer and piety and political action, there could emerge in the coming decades a consensus for life and that the 21st century could look back on our generation with the same dismay that we look back on the slave laws of this land and on the concentration camps of World War II. Nationwide reformation has happened before with Wilberforce in England and Lincoln in America. It can happen again. Will you put the trumpet to your lips or be silent? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how faithful you are. We've been singing about how you save us, you bring salvation, you redeem us, God, and I'm confident through your word, God, that you can redeem any situation. Would you provide comfort today to those who have been affected by abortion. And for those of us, like myself at many times in my life, who've just been passive about it and don't think about it till certain political seasons. God, for those of us who are half-hearted now or have experienced half-heartedness and passivity, God, would you arrest our hearts again to stand up for life, for your glory, and for the sake of the unborn. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.